Good morning to you. As you find your seats, let's go ahead and open up the Word of God together. Uh, You can meet me in 2 Corinthians. We'll be in chapter 13. I'm going to read from verses 1 through 10. Um, If you've recently joined us or you're unfamiliar with First Alliance Church, my name is Mike Kazarowski. Uh, I serve as one of the pastors on staff here, and I would like to do whatever I can to make you uh, personally feel welcome here. And so please don't hesitate to make yourself known after service. It's always a great opportunity to meet uh, new people after our time together. Uh, please don't hesitate. Um, two quick notes before we begin. One, I just want to encourage you in that FAC is a body. I, I have seen us engage in the worship of God through music uh, very differently in the last several months, I should say, uh, in that I'm hearing people sing. I am hearing the hearts of our people uh, and it's wonderful. It's beautiful, actually. For whatever reason, this morning in particular, I, I, I thought about the book of Revelation and the glimpses that the Apostle John was given uh, of what heaven's going to look like. And when we come together and we, we sing uh, praises to God, it's a glimpse of what that day is going to look like. And it's very edifying to the body. It builds up. And so all that to say, I'm encouraged. You should be encouraged um, and, and to be singing praises to God. Uh, it's, it's been wonderful, actually. Um, a, a second note, uh, many of you know or may not know, we have a, uh, a family who are international workers uh, in the Ukraine. Um, they call our church home. Uh, but they do missions work in the Ukraine. And if you've been paying attention to the news lately, uh, it's, it's not uh, a pretty sight what's happening there um, to the point where uh, even embassies have called on American citizens to come home. And so our international workers, I actually can't share your name with them. It would actually put them at risk. Um, once again, many of you know who they are, uh, but um, they have uh, determined that it would be best for them to come home for a time. Um, this is sad and quite devastating, actually, uh, and heartbreaking. Um, but they are traveling back to the United States today. And so I would ask you as a church body to come alongside these missionaries and pray for them, uh, for safe travels, and even just the emotional burden that they must be going through having to leave the field, uh, given the political strife that's happening uh, b- b- on the border there. So um, what I'd like to do is pray for them specifically this morning right now, and then we'll go into a time of studying God's word. So please uh, do pray with me. And Heavenly Father, you, you know um, our hearts, and we, you know, Lord, that uh, it's our utmost desire for the gospel to be proclaimed in all nations. Um, we uh, have international workers. You know them, and you know their hearts, uh, and you know that it is um, apparently not safe anymore, Father, for them to be where they are. And so as they've made the determination through prayer to come back uh, to the States for a time, I pray that you would bless them and go before them and keep them um, and protect them so that they can return, Lord. We do lift up that situation to you, Father. Uh, politically, Lord, uh, we, we, we know that your sovereign hand is over it. And we would ask, Lord, that uh, somehow, some way, you would be brought glory through it, Father. Uh, we know that the um, kings of nations... Uh, are still in submission to you and your sovereignty and your authority, Lord. And I pray that through this even devastating situation that people would come to know you and come to know who you are and your will um, through a very sad and hard situation, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. 
Amen. Let's take time to look at 2 Corinthians 13. Uh, I'll read from verses 1 through 10. This is what the Apostle Paul writes. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all the others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you, for he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Would you pray with me once more? And Father, we believe that these words that we just read, although written several centuries ago, are divinely inspired by you, uh, that you breathed out your word and directed the pen strokes of the Apostle Paul's hand. And while these words were written at a specific time to a specific group of people in a specific context and culture, we believe that these words are also for us and useful to us for our own growth. So Lord, during our time this morning, Would the Holy Spirit illuminate your inspired words and and would we know your will for your people? In our time together, would you build us up in spiritual maturity and would it be evident that Jesus Christ is present in our souls? For it's in his name we pray all of these things. Amen. Some of you... uh, may not even know this, but First Alliance Church is actually part of a greater family of churches um, in the U.S. We're about one of 2,000 different churches that come under the umbrella of a denomination called the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Um, now, the national office for the CMA, it's, uh, it's been located in Colorado Springs since about 1989. But within the last year, after uh, much prayer and uh, preparation, they, they began a relocation process to Reynoldsburg, Ohio, uh, which is a suburb east of Columbus. Um, early last year, they successfully purchased, I believe, what was about a, a plot of land that's at about 11 acres. Um, and uh, that was a major milestone, right, to this entire process. And Uh, If they weren't able to acquire this plot of land, the whole relocation, at least to Reynoldsburg, would have been uh, dead in the water. Uh, But the accusation, in effect, greenlit uh, the the relocation. And so at that point, the national office was ready to roll into Reynoldsburg. And the only thing standing in their way now was an old Kmart building, which had actually been vacated and abandoned several years prior. 
Now, there was no question in anyone's mind that they needed to demolish that building before they could build their own new headquarters because the building was not useful as it stood. They knew that to try and use the existing structure with all of its existing issues would only breed more problems in the future. They knew that it is better to get rid of the old problems rather than to just ignore them and build around them. So at the end of August, the CMA actually hosted a demo day, which was a great uh, celebration for the community of Reynoldsburg as they began this process of tearing down the old Kmart building. Similarly, the Apostle Paul, he is in the business of construction. He is in the business of building up and he is not developing buildings per se. He is in the business of developing people to spiritual maturity, to Christ-likeness. Yet in the same way, Paul recognizes that in order to build up the church in Corinth in spiritual maturity, there is some blight that needs to be tended to. And in the closing chapter of Second Corinthians, um, Paul warns them that the next time he comes, the next time he visits Corinth, he is going to bring judgment to those who continue to live in sin, to those who uh, re- continue to rebel against him as a messenger of God. He, he specifically declares it as clear as day in verse 2, when I come again, I will not spare them. Now, this is always a difficult subject to broach in our culture that is oversaturated with a mindset of acceptance and tolerance. Right, right? We live in an age where sin is watered down and evil is often called good. The author of the book of Judges in the Old Testament could have just as well described our world right now in the same way that he describes Israel in the last verse of his book. Right? He records that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're there. That's what's happening in the midst of our culture. And so anytime we address this issue of judgment, of sin, there are always people perhaps even in this very room when they read this, who try and paint a portrait of God as nothing more than a rage-filled wrath monger who is only out to smite his underlings. Even believers come across passages like this, people that are walking in the faith and they read that Paul will not spare the Corinthians who are living in sin. And even believers have the temptation to feel as though this is much too harsh. Paul, you're you're being too harsh. If that's you in reading this passage, that this is much too severe, I want you to consider the text where we find that Paul actually acts very reasonably in this situation because this is a matter of patience and this has been a matter of position and this is a matter of purpose. We see all three of those in the text, specifically verses 1, 2, and then we'll jump down to verse 10. Patience, position, purpose. Let's walk through them together. 
Paul opens the passage in verse 1, explaining that this is the third time that he will visit Corinth. That's significant, right? The first time that he visited was actually when he planted the church, uh, probably around the year 50 to 52 AD. And he was there for at least a year and a half, probably more like two years, uh, planting that church before moving on. Now, several years after the fact, probably around three years after he left, he received word that things weren't going well in the Corinthian church. Right? They, they, were, uh, they, were, they were doing sinful things and they were conducting themselves in manners that believers shouldn't conduct themselves. And so in response to this, Paul wrote them a letter and that's the letter that we have. It's, we call it 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, Paul actually seeks to correct some of these problems happening in Corinth. And from there, we know that things actually got worse Because at that point, some false teachers had slithered their way into church leadership and turned some of the Corinthians against Paul. And so at that point, Paul drops everything and he he goes to visit Corinth. This is his second visit. And it's what he refers to in chapter two of this letter as a painful visit. That didn't go so well. And so this upcoming visit that Paul announces formally will be the third time he goes to Corinth. And so in verse one, as he formally announces that he's coming for a third visit, he goes on to strangely quote an Old Testament verse, Deuteronomy 19.15. It was Jewish law, it was from Jewish law that every charge in a legal case must uh, must be brought and established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, the portion, the, the purpose of that portion of the law that you needed at least two or three witnesses to indict someone was intended to protect anyone from being falsely accused, right? They didn't want someone convicted of a crime on the basis of a false testimony of a single disgruntled person who may act maliciously towards another, And so the law said you had to have at least two or three witnesses to substantiate any of the claims. And so Paul uses this language here in conjunction with his three visits as a way to say, I have all of the evidence that I need to to build a case against those who are still living in sin. Paul says, we don't need any more evidence. We don't need any more witnesses. I've seen enough. But I want us to consider the patience of Paul that he had in this situation. In verse two, he writes, I warned those who sinned before. He's talking about 1 Corinthians where he specifically addresses uh, some of their sin issues. In 1 Corinthians, he spoke specifically to their impurity and their sexual immorality and sensuality. Right? If you were with us last week, you get to the end of chapter 12 and he mentions these things again. Right? What he's doing is he's referring to 1 Corinthians. He's saying, you guys have, have, have struggled with this ever since I wrote that first letter. And I'm going to remind you again. And we've got to keep in mind that 2 Corinthians was written at least a year, if not two to three years after 1 Corinthians was written. Now, 1 Corinthians was his first warning, but not only that, 
We see that in verse 2, Paul warned him them on his second painful visit. Right? He said, I'm going to come back at some point. And if I come back and I find that you're still living in sin, there will be judgment. He told them, when I come back a third time, it won't be with grace and humility, but it's going to be in judgment and it's going to be in authority if the sinful rebellion continues. And then, and then after the fact, we know um, not from this passage, but back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that Paul was tempted to return for a third visit, but he knew that if he returned to a third visit, that the time was up, that it was game over. And so in lieu of a third visit, he writes them a tearful letter. He writes them another letter that we don't have, once again warning them. He gave them grace in this moment, he explains in 2 Corinthians 2, that he could have come back, but he didn't as to give them more time to repent. Paul looks at that painful letter as, a, as a, another chance to warn the Corinthians. And then finally, he writes this letter of 2 Corinthians. If you look in our text, if you let your eyes wander down to verse 10, Paul makes it very clear that, that there's still more time. Paul says in verse 10, for this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe. The whole letter of 2 Corinthians functions as just another chance for the Corinthians to repent. And so you can read this passage on the surface level out of context all you want and say, well, that sounds awfully harsh. But we must remember that Paul has been patient. Paul has given them every reasonable chance they need to turn away from their sin and submit to God. This is not as if this is the first time Paul has heard about this and then intends to bring the hammer down. No, this is a development over the course of several years, over several visits, with several written warnings. You cannot say that the rebellious in Corinth weren't given a reasonable chance to turn from their sin. You see, if Paul is excessive in anything, he has not been excessive in his judgment. He has actually been excessive in his grace. If Paul is at fault for anything, it's because he's been too gracious and hasn't judged sooner. Grace abounds in this situation. Paul is patient. And this is not just a matter of patience, but this is also a matter of position. There's some justification here on how Paul acts because of a position. And I'd like to briefly camp out at verse 10 because that's where we see that this is not only a matter of patience, but a matter of position and also a matter of purpose. It, it, it would be easy for one to say the trite phrase to Paul, well, Paul, you're coming in here like you've got all the authority in the world. Who died and made you king? Right? You've heard that phrase before. It's a sarcastic response to somebody who assumes a position of authority that they didn't really earn, that they really shouldn't be in. Paul, who died and made you king? And Paul would simply say, well, Jesus died. 
And, and then he conquered death. And then he bestowed authority to me. He told me to go. And so you'll notice in verse 10 that this calling out of sin, this holding accountable, Paul has the authority in this situation to do so because it was given to him by the Lord. This relates somewhat to what we talked about last week. I referenced a book um, that explains how many people have a very weak and low view of the doctrine of the local church. And, And the author describes how the underlying disease between many of the symptoms is the assumption that we have the authority to conduct our Christian lives all on our own. Right, right? That, that we, we can plug into a church and then we can unplug in a church. And I'll come here on Sundays, but as far as the rest of the week goes, there's nobody that can tell me what to do. And there's nobody that can hold me accountable for, for the things that I am doing. However, in Scripture, we see that this is not the case. Because Jesus Christ has actually elevated the local church as one body, as an entity, in our context, not an individual person, but one body, us together as a body, we have been elevated to a place of spiritual authority where you can be in my mess and I can be in yours. And that counts for more credit than we give it. In the specific context of the Corinthians, Paul himself as an individual was given the authority as their father in, in, in spirit and as an apostle of Christ. But Paul was allowed, based on his position, to punish sin. And we don't know what the punishment looked like, but we know that Paul was allowed to because of the authority that Jesus Christ himself had given. Now, what's of important note here is that one, um, if, if one is in a position of authority, yet has poor motivations, you, at that point, you do not have a father, you have a tyrant, right? You don't have a spiritual father, you have a tyrant. So equally important to Paul's judgment in his position is that this is not just a matter of patience and this is not just a matter of position, but it is also a matter of purpose, Take a look at verse 10. Again, we see that this is a matter of purpose. We see Paul's motivation. What does he say in verse 10? For this reason, I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe. That's patience, right? Severe in the use of, my, of the authority that the Lord has given me. That's position. Has given me, why? For building up and not for tearing down. That's purpose. And Paul includes this final verse because as we've already established, what he writes could certainly be perceived or construed as tearing down. It very well could appear that Paul is abusing his authority only with the purpose to tear people down. People could look on him and see him calling people out on their sin, holding them accountable, warning him and say, well, Paul, that is so unloving of you. That is so ungracious of you. All you are out is to to tear people down and to, to burn the whole place down. And so Paul makes it clear that his intention in punishing sin is to demolish the blight 
for a greater purpose so that we can make room and build something better. And the demolition of sin, it's always costly and it's always disruptive and it's always inconvenient, which is why we don't like to do it. But it is necessary. And as an outsider looking into this situation, it softens the blow a little bit when we know that Paul's purpose is not to tear down, but to actually build up. So we see this is a matter of patience. This is a matter of position. This is a matter of purpose. And that paradigm of patience, position, and purpose that Paul implements here comes actually from none other than Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ has promised another visit, that there will be a day he returns in the flesh to this earth. And Jesus Christ has made it very clear in a letter that when he comes, when he shows up, the time is up. That Jesus will not spare, like Paul, those who are still living in rebellion to God. And Jesus' second coming is a matter of purpose to build up his church, to finalize his church, to gather his church once and for all. He will completely rid the world of sin in that moment so that the bride of Christ, as he calls it, will be unblemished on a beautiful wedding day. Jesus' second coming is also a matter of position. The the first time Jesus came, he came in the position of a helpless, vulnerable baby. He came in submission. He came in weakness. But when he comes again, he will not come in submission and he will not come in weakness, but he will come in authority and he will come in power. He will not take on the form of a helpless baby emptying himself out of all the glory that goes along with being God, as Philippians 2 says, but he will come in the position of a warrior king and power who will judge. And according to Philippians 2 and even John 5, God the Father has given Jesus all the authority in heaven and on earth and under the earth. To what? To judge. Jesus will be in a position, is in a position of authority. But thanks be to God that Jesus' return is also a matter of patience. That Jesus has been patient. Right, if you're keeping score at home, Jesus made the promise almost 2,000 years ago that he would return. It's been so long that there are many people who point and, and maybe mock and scoff and say, where is your God? He hasn't showed up. What's taken him so long? What could he possibly be busy with? What could he possibly preoccupy himself with that that, that he hasn't shown himself yet? Where is your God? Why is he so slow? Yet once again, God in his word makes it perfectly clear why judgment hasn't happened yet. 1 Peter 3.9, the apostle writes that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness or as some consider what slowness is, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I've heard it said that the only reason the sun rose this morning 
is because God desires more people to hear his voice and respond to it by turning away from their rebellion and turning towards Jesus in submission. The only reason a new day dawns is so that more people would believe. That's grace. That's patience. Because consider the severity and and the weight of the sin of unbelief. Consider why Jesus' blood covers every single other sin, covers the entirety of our sin, except for the sin of unbelief. Why is the sin of unbelief so much worse than all the rest? Why isn't Jesus, God, willing to forgive the sin of unbelief? Consider it, right? This is a quote from an article that I stumbled upon this past week. The author writes that God is infinite in power, authority, goodness, glory, beauty, majesty, and honor. He is infinitely more worthy of praise and gratitude than all humanity combined. He is immeasurably wonderful, splendid, and fabulous in every conceivable conceivable way and in countless ways that we can't even begin to conceive. God is the supreme treasure in the universe. He is infinitely worth, uh, more worthy of our belief and trust and honor than anything and everything else that exists. So when someone says they don't believe, they are saying, in effect, that God is of no value to me. God is useless. God is altogether of less worth than my car. God is less deserving of my praise than my dog when he sits at my command. Unbelief is a human being, a creature saying that the creator is tarnished and ugly and undeserving, not even of my praise, but my acknowledgement. That is what the sin of unbelief says. And if you don't believe, whether you realize it or not, That is the posture that you have taken against an almighty and all-glorious God. And you have taken that posture, depending on your age, for thousands, if not tens of thousands of former days. Yet you woke up today with at least one more chance to turn to God. So let me pose a question concerning the harshness of addressing sin. Who is truly the unreasonable one? Who is the one in the wrong? Is it God? Who who is in a position of power and glorious splendor, who has has to punish sin as a part of his character because, because he's perfect, yet patiently waits and withholds his judgment for an extremely extended period of time? so that there would be more opportunities for you to respond to to his call? Is it God who, who, who not only is patient with us, but has offered us a way out in Jesus Christ that he poured out his wrath on Jesus so he wouldn't have to do it to you, his one and only son? Is that wrong? Is that unreasonable? Is that too harsh? Or are we the unreasonable ones? Are we the harsh ones? who actively rebel against the creator. Every day, we don't want anything to do with him. 
We regard him as worthless with every waking hour, yet then have the audacity to say that God is not a loving God or that God is not a caring God when he finally does enact judgment. How many more days are you willing to test his patience? You've only been given this one with no promise of tomorrow. And when that day comes, when Jesus returns, he will come displaying his power in judgment. He's going to display his power primarily not through, once again, miracles or ecstatic spiritual experiences. He will display his power in his judgment. And so in the same way, Paul warns the Corinthians that Christ's power will be displayed when he judges them in their sin. At the end of verse 2, into verse 3, Paul says that if I come again, I will not spare them since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. I want us to remember the context of, of 2 Corinthians, right? They, there were false teachers who had come in and said that God's power couldn't possibly be resting on Paul because of how weak he is. Look at how frail the man is. He possibly couldn't have God's power. And so Paul basically says in verse 3 and 4, you want to see God's power? I'll show you God's power. But it's going to be much more than you bargained for. You will know that God's power rests in me when I come and I, I, I judge sin, when I will, will not spare you. It will be powerfully displayed through authoritative judgment. That's all the proof that you will need to see that God's power rests in me. And then Paul does something fantastic in verse 5. He turns the tables on the Corinthians because once again, Paul has been the one under the microscope the entire time. Paul has been put to the test and according to his opponents, he has failed miserably. One commentator writes that his lifestyle, his experiences, his success, his looks, his eloquence, all left much to be desired for Paul's opponents. Yet Paul, graciously, has answered to every one of their critiques. And now in verse 5, he turns to them and he says, guess what? It's time for you to be put to the test. I've been under the microscope enough. Now it's your turn. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Now, now the kind of testing that Paul envisions here is not a test like you would take at the end of a semester in college to see how much information you've retained, but rather it's a test or an evaluation to determine the genuineness of a product. Um, this past week, due to the wonderful magic of Google, I came across a website for a company that tests certain products. And on their website, they claim to have more than 100 years of testing rope. Who knew, right? I don't know. On the same page, they, they say, this is a direct quote. <laughs> this, is, this is a great sentence. The condition of a rope cannot be assessed at first sight. A professional state analysis provides clarity as to whether the relevant rope can still be safely used. On the basis of the results obtained, it is possible to make statements about the durability of the rope. This company tests rope 
to, to be able to make statements about the integrity of the rope. And if it fails the test, they determine that the rope is counterfeit and that it's illegitimate. It's, it's not a real rope, right, if you can't use it. You, can make, you cannot make certain statements about the genuineness of a rope until you've put it to the test. And so what Paul asks the Corinthians to do is evaluate, in this case, their faith. T- test the genuineness of your faith. Is it the real deal? Paul says, can I make statements about the genuineness of your faith? Well, Paul, how do I know? What denotes a passing test? What proves the genuineness of my faith? And we'll notice in verse 5 that the passing mark of the evaluation is not any sort of moralism. It's not being good enough. You do not pass the test because you're a good person. Now, what does Paul say in verse five? Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves? That Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test. What proves the genuineness of my faith? It's the presence of Jesus Christ. The, the, the mark of one who is genuinely in the faith is the one who has the presence of Jesus Christ. It, it, if the spirit of Christ is not in you, then you have indeed, as Paul says, failed the test. Your faith is not genuine. Now that is a very simple and objective test. Right? Because either Jesus Christ is in you or he is not in you. And there's no room for middle ground here. You are either, as a result of Jesus' presence, alive spiritually, or you are dead spiritually as as a result of his absence. As a result of his presence, you are either an object of God's love, and as a result of his absence, you are either God's uh, an object of God's wrath. Jesus has either taken up permanent residence in your soul or he does not live in you. And it's impossible. It's impossible for Jesus to only take up residence on the weekends or during certain seasons of life as if your soul is Christ's temporary vacation home. It can't happen. He is either in you or he is not. And that is the question that Paul asks the Corinthians. And that is the question that every single person in this room should ask here today. Is Jesus Christ in me? Has he taken up residence in my life? And the challenge to this question is that anyone can say that Jesus Christ is in them. Anyone can claim the genuineness of their faith. And so what Paul is looking for is how does Paul know in this situation if Jesus is in the Corinthians? Look, you could tell me until the sun comes up that you have the presence of Jesus. But only God can see your heart. So, so that question, the answer to that question of, is Jesus in me? It, it really is a matter that only you and God could truly know. I can't know. Paul couldn't know about the Corinthians, but there are some things that support the fact that maybe Jesus is living in their heart. And that is what Paul gets at here. How do I know? In this instance with the Corinthians, it was because of their repentance. It was through their repentance there was evidence. Sarah and I, we moved into our house about eight years ago. And when we first moved in, there was so much evidence that someone else had lived there before us, that there was a prior occupant. 
because the house had their carpet and the house had their decorations and their paint job and their landscaping. We have even since found um, old scribbled notes from the previous owner tucked away into the deep crevices of the house behind drawers. We have found pictures of, of their family tucked away behind the deep crevices of the house. But when we took up residence there, over time, we changed the carpet. And, and we changed the paint and we moved in our furniture and we landscaped how we wanted a landscape and we hung up our own pictures. And soon enough, the house started to look like our house instead of somebody else's house who lived in it prior to us. So, so much so that if you know me well enough and you know what I look like and you know what my kids look like, you know what my family looks like, Somebody could bring you into our house without us being there, without you knowing that it's our house, and you could examine the evidence, you could look at the pictures on the wall, and you could make a reasonable assumption that I did indeed live in that house. In the same way, this is what happens when Jesus takes up residence in our life. Jesus comes in and he cleans house. He decorates how he would wish to decorate. He, he cleans up all the old things that pointed to a prior occupant, that pointed to an old self. And he begins progressively to display evidence that he himself lives there. The, the evidence of the presence of Jesus is transformation. It's obedience. And so it's important that we don't get this backwards because many people do. They, they, they get into this mindset that if I just clean up my life, if I can be good enough to earn God's favor, if I can be good enough that Jesus will take up residence in my house, if I just clean my house up enough, then Jesus will be willing to come and stay at my house. Jesus doesn't like a mess, so I'm gonna clean up my mess and I'm gonna work really hard and then Jesus will come. But, but, but the problem is, from a biblical perspective, the reality of scripture is that that will never happen. You cannot clean up your house enough for Jesus to come and live with you, to accept the terms, if you will, by which you live. So instead, Jesus, by his grace, says, I'm gonna come and live in your soul anyway. I'm gonna take up residence, even though there's a lot of junk lying around, even though there's a lot of mud on the wall. And so Jesus takes up residence and he's the one who transforms you. So moral transformation and obedience, it's not a means to salvation. It's not how you are saved, but it is a byproduct of it. Obedience does not produce salvation. Salvation, however, produces obedience. By Paul's logic, the Corinthians' obedience, um, repentance in, in, in response to Paul's gracious warnings, it does not mean their faith is Genuine, it just means that there's a pretty good chance, as best as Paul can tell, that Jesus lives in them. And if Jesus lives in them, then their faith is genuine. They've passed the test. We see that here in 2 Corinthians that Paul's call to repentance is not a call for the Corinthians to be better or to do good. It's a call to prove that Jesus is living within them to show the genuineness of their faith. If Jesus lives in you, there will be transformation. The two go hand in hand. And it's actually impossible for you not to change in some way if Christ 
is in you. It's impossible. And if it were, it would be making a liar out of who Jesus is and what he is capable of. Now let me close our time briefly by reminding us that this is a spiritual work. You'll notice that nowhere in this passage does Paul give the Corinthians tips and tricks and antidotes and techniques on how to overcome their sin in five easy steps. No, what does he do? Later on in the passage, he prays. This is not a summons to try harder. This is a summons to pray, to, to go to God as the only source who restores, to go to God as the only one who can give you Jesus, the presence of Jesus. Verse 9, this is what Paul says, it's your restoration, that's the goal that we pray for. It, it reminds me of the Psalm, uh, Psalm 40, where David writes uh, about his own spiritual condition, a metaphor for his own spiritual condition. L- listen to the two verse, for the first two verses of the Psalm. David says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And he drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. Notice that David doesn't say, I just need to take inventory of all the resources out of my disposal and figure out how to get myself out of this bottomless dark pit of sin. He doesn't say, I just need to try harder. No, he says, I can't get out of this mess myself. So so, so I cried out to God, God, lift me up out of this this, this pit of destruction. And, And he did. Have you ever prayed to God? Like that? What, what is prayer in your life? It, it, does it continue to, to, to remain a religious activity, a pious activity? If I do this because God wants me to? Because sometimes, somehow he will, I, I, I will earn his favor if I do? Or do you call out to God saying, Lord, I am desperate. And I desperately need you. I can't get out of this mess. I am in a pit of sin and I am hopeless. And so would you pull me out? Because I know you are the only one that can give me the presence of Jesus and it's only the presence of Jesus in my life that can rescue me from this miry bog and set my feet upon the rock. If you haven't done that yet, God has given you the grace at least for today to do so. And I would suggest that you do not test his patience another day. Would you pray with me? And Heavenly Father, this is a hard truth out of your word, Lord, that you, you do not tolerate sin. While you are gracious, Father, there will be a day that we will be held accountable for our rebellion against you, Lord. But we praise you for the fact that while there will be accountability, Jesus has already paid the price on the cross that we can take advantage of the payment already made. Father, we thank you that Jesus in his work, your son, didn't delete my sin. He didn't necessarily even erase my sin, Father, but he paid for my sin. And now my debt is cleared. Would that be our praise to you, Father? And as we close our time together as one body, would we give your glorious name all the praise it deserves? And it's in your holy name we pray. Amen.